Hello, you're listening to a podcast from Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Radio Maria is a 24-7 Catholic radio station broadcasting online via our app, Radio Maria Play, and on DAB in an increasing number of areas. You can follow us on social media. And if you enjoy this program, please do click like and subscribe to us on your podcast provider. Radio Maria relies entirely upon listener donations. We have no other sources of funding, so please do consider supporting us with a monthly or one-off donation so that we can continue to keep providing great programming free at the point of access. To donate or find out more, visit us at radiomariaengland.uk. Hello, you are listening to Radio Maria, and this is Father Toby presenting Just Life Today, and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio um, by the uh, Right Reverend Kenneth Novakowski, who is the Ukrainian Eparchial Bishop of the Holy Family Eparchy in London. And with his permission, after having said that mouthful, I'm going to refer to him as Bishop uh, Kenneth from, from now on. Um, but Bishop Kenneth, uh, a, a very warm welcome to the, the Radio Maria London London studio. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you and your listeners here today. And um, I just thought we'd uh, start off with some questions that um, I'm sure some of our listeners would have, because when um, they might have looked on the program and, and heard that we had the Ukrainian epoch coming in, they, they might not have expected uh, a Bishop Kenneth and they might not have expected to to hear a, a Canadian accent. Um, so, can can you tell us a little bit of, about your about yourself? Sure. Uh, I arrived here in the United Kingdom on March of 2020, and my enthronement was just three days before the full scale lockdown. And uh, before that, I can say that my family emigrated from Ukraine in the 1890s, around 18. 96-97 to Canada. Uh, they were peasant farmers from Western Ukraine. And um, really, in some ways, uh, surprisingly due to Queen Victoria, my family arrived in Canada because uh, in those early days, Western Canada was fairly sparsely settled, mainly living there were, of course, our Canadian First Nations people. And the uh, Minister of Foreign uh, Affairs for Canada, Lord Clifford Sifton, was concerned that the neighbors to the south might have plans for Western Canadian territories. And so he took his finger, apparently, and put it on a, a map of the world and looked at a parallel towards Eastern Europe, where people were farmers and would be able to immediately begin tilling the soil. And so they started a major campaign 
both here in the United Kingdom and also in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was uh, where my, which is now Western Ukraine as well. Basically, saying um, the um, best Great West, and they were promising 130 acres to every man over the age of 18 for free if he would settle on it and uh, work on it. And the emancipation of serfdom only happened in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1846-47, I believe. And so my family probably only had less than a quarter acre of land or something like that and a lot of hungry mouths to feed. And so my great-great-grandfather and great-grandfather and their siblings and all of their children basically packed up all of the things that they had and were able to carry and ended up uh, arriving in uh, the province of Saskatchewan and now the province of Alberta and became farmers. And so um, I grew up on a family farm. Um, my father was a farmer and uh, I have an older brother and a younger brother. And my dad, I think, decided very early that his three sons probably would not follow in the family tradition and become farmers. My older brother went off uh, on a career in um, industrial manufacturing, and my younger brother also uh, in that type of uh, a career in uh, construction and things like this. Kenneth, yes, it's not a common uh, first name for a Ukrainian um, boy, but my mother and father had a great appreciation for things Scottish, and you can tell that by the names of their three sons, James, Kenneth, and, of course, Robert. <laughs> and uh, I've, uh, growing up in, in, in Saskatchewan, although there was a fairly large Ukrainian community, in fact, today we have, um, you know, over uh, 1.6 million people in Canada that claim a Ukrainian ethnic heritage, but um, I think... People in Saskatchewan in, you know, the last century had a hard time pronouncing my last name, which I think is perfectly easy to pronounce. My younger brother, Bob Robert, made up a, a card when people would have difficulties and he'd say, have you ever seen a Kowski? <laughs> Noah Kowski. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, I was always grateful for that my mom and dad gave me such a wonderful, you know, name Kenneth or Ken. And then uh, if we fast forward quite a few years after I was ordained a priest, I was assigned to live and work in, in Ukraine. And Novikovsky was not a difficult name for Eastern Slavic people, Ukrainians, to say or pronounce or spell. But Ken, <laughs> that was a bit of a challenge because Ken is very close to the Ukrainian word horse, keen. And so they would look at me, keen, Father Keen. And I would say, no, Ken. And in the Soviet times, Barbie dolls were popular. <laughs> and so I'd always say, well, have you heard of Barbie? Yes. Well, what was her boyfriend's name? Ken. Oh, Ken. <laughs> so I guess I've got to ask you, have you seen the film? No, I have not seen the uh, film. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. Uh, <laughs> have you? I, 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 one of our parishioners here kindly bought me a ticket to to go and see and we've actually done a, a review of it on the on the radio and i think 
our reviewers were slightly more sympathetic towards it than well i've, I've heard I reviews that have said that it's really a, a, a genesis story that um, Barbie falls out of the perfect Barbie world into reality, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, no, there's, 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 some, there's something in that, but there's no, uh, there's, there's no, there's no redeemer, there's no prospect of, well, then, uh, of hope. Um, man, man, and woman are just fundamentally pitted against however, one another. However, when I was growing up, I was uh, um, my mum and dad uh, enrolled my older brother and myself and my younger brother in the North Battleford City Kinsman Band. I played the uh, E-flat alto saxophone, and one of my best friends uh, played the flute, and her name happened to be Barbie. And so all throughout school, it was, hi, Ken, where's Barbie? <laughs> <laughs> and, and tell us, how strong was sort of Ukrainian culture for you growing up? Like, were you going to a, a Ukrainian church? Yes, I was. Uh, my family uh, retained their Ukrainian Catholic identity. We had a Ukrainian Catholic Church in our little town, in our area. Um, and, um, you know, if you have ever been to Western Canada and you're traveling along the long roads, you'll see not so much anymore because the population has moved into the urban areas, but you would see a grain elevator, probably a steeple of a Roman Catholic or a Anglican church, and the familiar domes of uh, either a Ukrainian Catholic or a Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And so uh, Western Canada was, um, you know, a, a place where a lot of Ukrainians settled and maintained their religious and cultural background. background. So uh, certainly from a young child, I would attend the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Although, Father Toby, if I can make a public confession to you, when I was 13 years old, I... I was not exactly the most saintly little boy. And one day we came home from church on a Sunday, and I stood sternly in the kitchen while my mom and dad were preparing for us to have brunch. And I stated to them, that's it. That's the last time I'm going to be attending this church. And my mother said, what are you talking about? And I grew up knowing, knowing a little bit of Ukrainian, but I wouldn't say I was fluent by anybody's stretch of an imagination. And unfortunately, in those days, our clergy, our priest, a very wonderful, caring, gentle man who had uh, uh, um, arrived in Canada shortly after the Second World War, he didn't really speak English. And so his homilies were in Ukrainian. Our church services were in Ukrainian or um, uh, earlier in church Slavonic. And I didn't really understand these languages. And I said, I didn't understand anything what he was saying. And we didn't have books in the pews for translation. And I said, so I'm not going. And I said, did you understand what Father Bukhdan said? And my parents do understand Ukrainian a little bit, but unfortunately they should have simply said, yes, Father Bukhdan said young boys should be gentle and kind, go to church and listen to their mummies and daddies. And um, unfortunately, I stopped going to church when I was 13. But I guess there's a, a happy ending. I mean, when I uh, turned 15, I loved 
watching hockey as all, I think, people in Western Canada in those days. Mm -hmm. It was hockey and curling. And uh, uh, the Saskatchewan Winter Games were being staged in our home area. And uh, I desperately wanted to go to as many hockey games as I could. And I found out that if I became a volunteer, I could get either free or greatly discounted tickets. And so I volunteered to be uh, working with the Winter Games, and I was assigned to the press office. And my job was to make photocopies of press releases. And as things happened, one of the people uh, working as well as a volunteer was uh, a French-Canadian girl. And uh, after the uh, Winter Games was over, she said, why don't we meet up uh, after Mass for coffee? And I said, oh, okay, what time does Mass end? And she says, well, that's a strange question. You should be asking me what time does Mass start? And I says, yeah, but I'm not a... And she says, you're a Catholic, aren't you? And I says, well, Ukrainian Catholic. And so she said, so join me for Mass. And I went, and it was in English. And I understood everything that the priest was saying and his homily. I didn't realize that the priest also was a close friend of my dad. I mean, it was a small community I grew up in, and so almost everyone knew everyone else. And after uh, the service, he was at the front of the church greeting everybody, and he says, oh, aren't you Stan and Roman Okoski's uh, son? And I said, yes. He says, well, welcome to church. He said, you should join the youth group. They're having a meeting right now. And so I joined the youth group and starting attending services, mass at the, the Roman Catholic Church on a regular basis and really, really enjoyed being there. That's fantastic. You hear so many wonderful stories, actually, about people who somebody just makes a seemingly casual invitation to, to come to Mass, somebody for whom the faith is very natural and and it's just the sort of thing you would do to say to someone, come along to, to Mass with me. And, and God sort of works through sometimes imperfect motivations, doesn't he, and, and, and brings out great fruit. Well, it was, it was a, a wonderful experience being with uh, young people who wanted to pray. Um, um, and uh, the priest, I have to say, was not afraid of questions from teenagers. Uh, his name is Father LaFrance, uh, an oblate of Mary Immaculate. And uh, um, I'm sure we peppered him with all of the questions that we could muster. And that was in the the early 1970s, so I'm sure that we weren't afraid mm -hmm. of expressing our thoughts or concerns. Yeah, and just for for our listeners, I know on a couple of occasions I've tried to to talk about it, but I'm, I'm sure you'll give a better explanation than me. Explaining, you know, what what is the the Ukrainian Catholic Church? How do, how do the different rites of the church fit sure. together? And can you just flip between the two? Uh, well, not you can, but uh, so. Most people uh, would assume that being Catholic means to be Roman Catholic or Latin Catholic. But in the Catholic communion of churches, we have over 24 different churches that are in communion with Rome, with the Holy Father. 
and the second largest of the Catholic churches in the world is the Ukrainian Catholic Church, and we're often also known as the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, and we follow what's called the Byzantine tradition liturgically. So our churches and our liturgy, divine liturgy, or would be referred to in the Roman Catholic Church as Mass, is um, following the Byzantine tradition, which the Greeks do, the um, 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 Belarusians, um, Slovak, Greek Catholics, and even the Russian Orthodox. So our liturgical celebrations are similar to the Orthodox churches of the Byzantine family. But, um, and so uh, when we say we're the second largest Catholic church in communion with Rome after the Latin church, the other Byzantine churches would be the Melkite church, which has its origins in Damascus, and um, the um, um, other Eastern Rite churches are like the Maronites, which also have their origins in Damascus. But we also have the Syro-Malbarians, who are very active here in the United Kingdom. And they can trace back their liturgical traditions and their faith to St. Thomas, who uh, Holy Legend claims that he went to India, and they're mainly concentrated in Kerala. So there are all of these different uh, rites, and as a result, um, we have formal communion with the Holy Father, with Pope Francis, and we believe in the same sacraments. Perhaps um, one of the differences in sacramental theology is regarding the sacrament of um, matrimony. We know that in the Latin Church, the ordinary ministers of the sacrament of matrimony are the bride and groom, the man and woman, and so even a deacon can preside at uh, um, uh, a matrimony uh, sacrament, whereas in the Eastern churches, the ordinary minister of the sacrament is an ordained priest. And so that would be one of the main differences regarding sacramental theology. Um, we also uh, retain our own calendar uh, of saints and uh, our traditions. So one of our more famous saints is uh, Saint Josephat, and he was a saint who was martyred um, over 500 years ago um, for his wanting to remain in union with, uh, with Rome. And in fact, his uh, body lies in um, a tomb, a crystal coffin tomb in St. Peter's Basilica. So the, if we want to, I'm not a historian, but if we look at <clears throat> the origins of the Ukrainian church in its Byzantine form, um, the ruler of what's now the territory of Ukraine uh, the ruler, St. Volodymyr the Great, he uh, was um, received into Christianity in 988 by um, bishops from now Istanbul, then Constantinople, and his baptismal name uh, is Basil. And uh, uh, he um, brought, introduced Christianity as the um, state religion, we could say, in Kievan Rus, uh, not Russia, Kievan Rus, 
Uh, and uh, so the church in 988 was still undivided and one. And so there was communion amongst the Eastern churches and, and Rome. Uh, after a number of years and incidences, there became a falling out. But in 1596, the majority of the bishops of the territory of Ukraine made formal union with the Holy See. And, uh, and so we can say we're in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. So in that regard, people of the various Catholic rites can pray in each other's churches, uh, attend the sacraments, receive um, Holy Communion. Uh, I'm a, a full member of the um, Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, and also I'm a member of the Bishops' Conference in Scotland, and uh, participate in both of those conferences. Great. And I, I was exposed to the Ukrainian Catholic liturgy for the first time when I went to Poland, I think just after I was ordained a, a deacon, and I went out there for a course on the um, on leadership and the thought of St. John Paul II. And the priest who we had with the group was a professor at the, the Catholic University in um, Lviv. Or I don't know. That's probably perfect. Got... You said it perfectly. Okay. That was uh, Father Oleg. And um, and so we had sort of mass each mm -hmm. each day um, in the in the Ukrainian rite. And, and it was very, very beautiful. It, it struck me actually that, that as, a, as, the, as the priest, there was, there was kind of a lot more work um, much more tiring to to, to say the the constant um, singing and and even daily mass. Um, well, it didn't seem that much shorter than 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 Sunday mass, but very very beautiful. Um, and I still sometimes say uh, one of the things that that struck me most was before the uh, the proclamation of the gospel. We we were having it um, the mass in English, and Father Oleg would sing. Wisdom, be attentive, and that I, I loved. I loved that. So, um, when can we expect you to come and join us at our liturgy at the cathedral here in London? <laughs> well, I'd I'd love to come along some sometime. I think uh, one one of our uh, priests of my community, Father uh, Gregory Pearson, mm -hmm. um, who's is our novice master in Cambridge, um, and uh, a brilliant linguist and and very interested in different liturgies. I think he was with you. Fairly, fairly recently. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, our, our liturgy, people say our liturgies are, they're very long, aren't they? And uh, on a Sunday liturgy, for example, here uh, in London at our cathedral, we have about 3,000 people attending Sunday liturgies every week. Um, we have uh, a Saturday evening liturgy at 6.15 and then uh, uh, Sunday liturgies at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., 12 noon, and 5 p.m. At quite a few of the liturgies, there's around 800 to 1,000 people at it. And I would say that our liturgy, including homily, we like to, if you can't say it in 10 minutes, you're not going to say it in 20, uh, are, are about an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes, our daily liturgies um, that we have at the cathedral, uh, the 6 of 15 p.m. liturgy, for example, is about 45 minutes long. Mm. Uh, so it, it's a bit of a myth, but I think that one of the special 
things that we can say about our liturgy is that we sing it, and uh, we sing it a cappella, so we don't use musical instrumentation. Um, Father Toby, do you know why the Latin Church has accompaniment with uh, instruments? I, I don't probably because we're not as good singers anymore. That definitely, like the the overall standard of singing of people in the group from uh, from Central and, and Eastern Europe was was far higher well, than those of us from well, the West. Well, the understanding that I have was that um, uh, the um, Emperor of Constantinople gifted a, a very rudimentary organ to uh, Charlemagne, and he thought it was so fabulous that he introduced it into his chapel. And um, there might be church scholars that want to refute that, and they certainly could and should, and uh, let me know where musical instruments uh, came into the Western church. So in the Eastern church, everything we do is sung a cappella. And, you know, the understanding is, is that the best musical instrument that has ever been created is the human voice because it was created by God. Mm. So it is challenging sometimes if you are have your parish priest and he doesn't have the best singing voice. And it can be challenging, of course, if sometimes your cantor's uh, voice is a little bit off. But in general, we are known for our beautiful singing and our choirs, uh, which add such a wonderful... Uh, mystic uh, experience to our liturgies. But that that was the thing that the singing was was really beautiful, and and there was a, I think for me a, a greater sense of of entering into a, into a mystery, partly because the, the unfamiliarity with some of what was what was going on, um, but also but because of the the atmosphere created by the liturgy. I remember one other thing which um, we were we were. Told like and on the on the second day, Father Oleg said to us, um, because mo- most of the people in the group were um, Roman Rite Catholics, he said, respectfully, I'd I'd ask you not to kneel um, during during the liturgy, which might might sound surprising to some of our listeners. But could you explain why that request might come? Well, we do kneel, and we tend to kneel an awful lot during the period of what we refer to as the Great Fast, Lent. In fact, we make uh, full prostrations to the the ground during uh, many of our services during Lent. But we, in the East, we see kneeling as a sign of penance. And uh, during Sundays, which we know are the celebration of Easter, um, we stand to show that we are the uh, people of the resurrection. Uh, also, something that is often said is that because the, the Greeks do have pews in their churches, and here in London in our churches we do have pews as well, but traditionally we wouldn't have pews in our churches. Um, the faithful would remain standing through, through the liturgy, and the Greeks apparently used to refer to the uh, uh, Byzantine Slavs as uh, those who pray with locked knees. And uh, um, so, yes, in general, during our liturgies, uh, we would stand. Kneeling um, has come into our practice uh, only probably because of our uh, contact and relationship with the church here in Western Europe. 
but in generally, um, especially during the Pentecost season, we would encourage our people to stand rather than kneel during consecration, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, like I, 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 I found it. It was it was really helpful for me to to sort of reflect on as Father Oleg said that the, you know, in the sense that in in the mass and particularly the mass the resurrection, um, that the the veil between you know heaven and earth is is sort of is is penetrated, and and when we're in heaven, there won't be these these penitential postures because well, we, we were, were during right before the beginning of the consecration, we have a prayer that is uh, said by the clergy at the altar, but also by the people, that says, Now let us mystically lay aside all cares of life uh, as we enter and greet the king of all. And I think that's an important aspect. Uh, um, we, we live in real time, as we like to say, but we also should enter into sacred time when we enter into a church, especially into prayer. Um, if we're measuring our time of prayer, we're also measuring the time that we feel that we should be in conversation with God, keeping in mind people have to uh, fulfill their duties in, in, in life as well. But I think when we enter into church, especially when, when we enter into liturgical services, we should lay aside all cares of life mm-hmm. and be prepared to welcome the King of all. Yeah, I remember one of the Nigerian priests who I worked with in Oxford once, and uh, he it was the 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 priory there is is dedicated to the Holy Spirit, and we'd had a a special sort of uh, vigil mass of of Pentecost, and when I went to the hospital um, the next day, he he said to me, "Oh, well, how was your celebrations last night?" And I said it was uh, oh, it was he said it was wonderful, um, and I said, but it went on for about an hour and three quarters, <laughs> and he said to me. Good, you people did not run away from the Lord for once. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, which I, I thought was was wonderful. You you mentioned about the uh, the numbers of of people at um at mass at the at the cathedral, which then sort of leads leads into the question about you know how have those been affected with the um the number of Ukrainians now 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 in, now in in London and and elsewhere in in the country and. And how much has the the Russian sort of invasion of Ukraine cha- changed your life as 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 bishop here? Well, f- um, the Ukrainian immigration uh, to the United Kingdom began around, you know, in mass immigration began shortly after the Second World War, and so last year we celebrated the seventy fifth anniversary of the establishment of our ecclesiastical structure here in the United Kingdom, and we had the great honor, actually, of um, welcoming uh, His Majesty the King to our cathedral, and he unveiled probably one of his first plaques, which uh, commemorates the 75th anniversary of the establishment of the ecclesiastical structure for the church. Our first parish uh, is actually located near Lockerbie in Scotland, because the first immigrants that were here were displaced people uh, from Ukraine, and they were put in uh, camps in Scotland. And one of the things that the Ukrainians did right after they were shown to their barracks was to build a little chapel. 
And uh, actually, this Saturday at 2 p.m., if you have an opportunity, come and join us at uh, our little parish in Lockerbie, where I'll be doing a rededication, celebrating a rededication ceremony. Uh, it had fallen into some dis- dilapidation and through a grants both from the Ukrainian uh, government and also uh, the Scottish um, Hist- Historical Scotland allowed us to renovate it and, and we'll be restoring it. So uh, our church here didn't have any structure as such, but uh, eventually these 30,000 uh, recently arrived um, displaced people moved throughout the United Kingdom, not simply remaining in in Scotland. And so our major communities were in in Manchester, in um, Bradford, in Stoke-on-Trent, and uh, in and around uh, London. In the 1950s, um, the late Cardinal William Godfrey um, really, really assisted the establishment of a, what was called a Ukrainian exarchate. It's sort of like a apostolic administrative area for specifically for Ukrainian Catholics until a Ukrainian bishop could be appointed. And so a Ukrainian bishop was soon appointed, Bishop Augustine, and under him the church here in, the, in Great Britain began to flourish and in, uh, you know, establishing parishes. The Ukrainian community also uh, flourished, establishing community centers throughout uh, England and uh, and Scotland, and uh, also uh, some communities in in Wales. In 1967, um, Bishop Augustine uh, convinced our Ukrainian immigration community that it would be good to have a cathedral in London, and so he was able to purchase our cathedral on uh, Duke Street and Wayhouse Street in in Mayfair. And um, so we have, um, probably prior to the um, full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia um, in 2022, we probably could say that we had just over 60,000, maybe 70,000 people of Ukrainian ancestry um, living in, in the United Kingdom. A lot of those people arrived shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, came here as laborers, mainly, I think, to help in the construction work of the infrastructure for the Olympics that were held here. Not all of those people, of course, are necessarily Ukrainian Catholic or even mm-hmm. Ukrainian Orthodox. I vividly remember the... Um, events of February 24th, 2022, waking up. Uh, I was at a, our clergy retreat in Leeds, and, um, you know, I want to say first said my morning prayers and then looked mm-hmm. at my mobile phone, mm-hmm. but I probably looked at my mobile phone to see what time it was and saw all of these messages that Ukraine had been invaded mm. by by Russia. And at first I thought it was some kind of joke, but it really wasn't. And so I made my way back to London, and uh, that same day there was a gathering, a large gathering 
uh, outside of uh, Number 10 Downing Street of Ukrainians and other people um, rallying and, uh, you know, against this this unprovoked war that was um, bombing and, and killing people. Uh, within days, uh, we realized that this was a full-scale invasion. And um, just a few days after the full-scale invasion, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, met with me and we talked about all sorts of things. But in those early days, it was hard to say how many people would be leaving Ukraine and fleeing harm's way. But we know now that millions and millions of people uh, from Ukraine have fled because their places, their homes, their businesses, their places of work, schools have been bombed. And the majority of them have um, fled through Ukrainian borders into Poland. And Poland, the people of Poland have been just remarkable in their hospitality, hospitality and greeting people. Also, people have fled into other neighboring countries like Moldova, Romania, Slovakia. And we know uh, that uh, over 180,000 Ukrainians have found shelter uh, here in the the United Kingdom. Um, sometimes they can be referred or have been referred to as refugees, but they really aren't refugees because they aren't fleeing persecution from their own government. They're fleeing because their homes have been destroyed by a foreign invader, and so they're temporarily displaced people. And one of the things that uh, is just amazing is the fact that over 80,000 ordinary British people have opened their homes to provide a safe place to these people that have fled and have come here. So um, our work with the, uh, in the Ukrainian Catholic Church and also with the, Ukrainian, the, Association, the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has been to assist as best as we can to welcome these people. So we've established uh, at our cathedral uh, a Ukrainian welcome center uh, along with the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain, where initially we were providing all sorts of information as to how to register for the NHS, uh, how to get your child into school, um, if there were challenges or problems with housing. Um, we've been working very closely with the Home Office and uh, the Office of Leveling Up. Uh, in fact, every fortnight they hold a in-person workshop at our premises so that people who are having a need for answers don't have to be on hold on telephone mm. for a long time. And the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain, which is kind of like an umbrella organization for Ukrainians, also has established, I believe, 31 points throughout England and Scotland and Wales. And we're there not only just to help those recently displaced people, but also um, sponsors. Um, maybe there's challenges with languages. Um, um, the majority of those that have arrived, of course, are young women with one or two children whose husbands are back in Ukraine um, fighting for Ukraine, fighting for freedom. And so people have opened up their homes and I think that we all were thinking with our hearts more than we were thinking with our heads. And people would say, yes, I've got 
a couple spare rooms. Our kids are now off and uh, we have space. And perhaps they forgot how noisy children can be and <laughs> how much laundry can be made and things like this. But in general, um, I think it's been a, a very incredible um, show of, of compassion by the people of Great Britain. And I think uh, a lot of those things could be looked at as best practices as how we can indeed help the people who are fleeing their countries because of uh, persecution. Um, there is a method. There is a way. Um, during the since the invasion, uh, His Majesty uh, the King has visited our cathedral and our welcome center, and we've been very grateful for that. Also, many different government officials, um, and so we're very grateful for that. The impact that it's had on our Ukrainian community and the Ukrainian Catholic Church, um, of course, has meant that we've had to reach out to people. Um, the healing of wounds is an important thing. Um, these young children, uh, even their travels to the United Kingdom, it wasn't a, a, a happy bus ride from their home to a summer camp. They were seeing horrific things. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to leave their parents, their fathers behind, their friends behind, um, everything they knew. And um, when we see the horrors of the war crimes being committed by the Russian invaders, um, that's affecting people as well. Yeah. yeah. And and this has just been going on so long now. Like I remember um, perhaps a, a year ago, we, we had a, a couple of people from uh, the St. John of God Hospitalia Services speaking about the sort of the efforts to 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 find um homes to to live in for the displaced people from Ukraine um but obviously it's you know the war has been going a long time and not the first example of uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine and and I understand um some years ago when when Russia sort of annexed Crimea you were you were involved with the the, the efforts to, to distribute the the yeah, nine, nine years ago when when uh, the Russian Federation annexed Ukraine, uh, annexed, sorry, annexed uh, the Crimean Peninsula and also invaded eastern Ukraine, the Donbass area, I had an opportunity along with the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, Patriarch Sviatoslav, and uh, several other bishops to have a meeting with uh, His Holiness Pope Francis at the Vatican. And we talked about what was happening and the needs of the Ukrainian people. And he 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 said that he would do something. And in fact, uh, you know, he was the first world leader that referred to the Russian invasion as war. And in fact, that year, nine years ago, on Divine Mercy Sunday, he asked the bishops of uh, Central and Western Europe to make a special collection to help the internally displaced people who were fleeing eastern Ukraine and the Crimea with uh, essentials, and also those who were still trapped in that Donbass area. And I believe something like uh, a little bit over 16 million euros were raised as a result of the Holy Father's appeal. And I was uh, appointed to be an advisor for the distribution of these funds. And uh, an interesting connection with the United Kingdom is that our previous nuncio that was here uh, um, Archbishop uh, 
Claudio Gujarotti, was the nuncio in Ukraine, and so he and I worked very closely on the distribution of these funds to assist those people who had lost their homes already uh, over nine years ago. Uh, a, a fabulous show of uh, support and care on the part of the Holy Father. Yeah, and I guess we have to to mention the, the support the Holy Father showed at that time, but there were also what what seemed to me sort of slightly unfortunate sort of comment to some young Catholics in uh, Russian Catholics in, in St. Petersburg um, recently speaking about sort of Russia's past. And I, I wondered whether you had anything to, to say about, about that. Well, that uh, incident happened when the Holy Father organized a live teleconference with uh, young people in Russia following the wonderful World Youth Day in, in Lisbon. And there was uh, a time when there was questions and answers that uh, followed the official part. And uh, some of the statements he made was uh, quoting or saying about the great Russian legacy, uh, talking about um, Peter I and Catherine the second and encouraging the young people to take example of their Russian culture. Some of the things that he said were, yes, in many ways, very hurtful to Ukrainian people. And over the last couple of days, I've received many telephone calls. And on social media, there's been a lot of concern and hurt expressed because during that period under uh, Peter I and Catherine, that's when Russian expansionism and Russian imperialism was at its height. And so thousands of Ukrainians perished during that time. Lands were confiscated. Churches were closed. Um, churches uh, were persecuted. Uh, clergy were persecuted, pardon me. And um, it seems rather odd that the Holy Father would bring up that part of Russia's history and past when Russia has invaded Ukraine and seems to be looking to not only grab its territory but destroy its people. I understand and I sympathize that the Holy Father was trying to emphasize with young Russian Catholics, but uh, it, it seemed very odd to us. And next week, uh, the Ukrainian Catholic bishops from all over the world will be holding an annual meeting. And this year, the Holy Father has invited us, because of challenges to going to Ukraine, to hold our annual synod of Ukrainian Catholic bishops in Rome. And so we have a scheduled meeting with the Holy Father, and we hope to be able to address that point and mm. hear more about that. For me, it, it is... Um, challenging to listen to those words, but I also want to encourage uh, our people and Catholics and people throughout the world to continue to remain faithful to the Catholic Church, to pray, uh, to pray for peace, a just peace in Ukraine, to pray for all of those who are helping Ukrainian people throughout the world, to pray for those who are defending Ukraine. Uh, victory is is uh, something that is not optional for Ukraine because this war in Ukraine is not just about Ukraine. It's about democracy, and it's 
really Ukrainians defending the way we live here uh, and enjoy the freedoms that we have here in the United Kingdom. Mm. We um we get sort of semi-regular now updates from uh, one of our friars in the in the Ukraine when the when the invasion first started he would he would send us an update sort of every 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 week and um we would read re- have it read out at our community rosary on a Friday and, and pray for pray for the Ukraine. And one of the things that that struck me and, and seemed so heroic and, and impressive was that even as a as a as a persecuted people as a, as a people invaded the the kind of the business of the church the business of, a, of evangelization carried on people were being prepared for ordinations one of our friars eagle what um has been um ordained who i i met back in 2016 um for our 800th anniversary of the of the foundation of the order and it's very striking as you listen to the the these letters both the 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 war efforts and 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 the response to the invasion but also the the work of evangelization the work of the proclamation well, of the I gospel think we can we can see that all of the roman catholic and ukrainian greek catholic bishops have remained in their diocese or in their eparchies eparchy is a greek word for diocese so they've all remained in, in their diocese, at their cathedrals, valiantly, and the priests as well. Uh, um, not too long ago, I was in Ukraine, and I <clears throat> was visiting one of our priests who uh, works as a priest just outside of the capital, outside of Kiev, in a town called Hostomil, which uh, is close to Bucha and Irpin, the two towns that unfortunately people have come to know as uh, where the horrible war crimes were committed that um, and we were revealed after the occupiers were driven out and uh, Father Roman is a, a young priest of about 32 years of age and he was showing me the devastation of Hostomil and uh, I said to him are you planning on leaving here and uh, I think my question shocked him and he says bishop kenneth um why would i leave here i've been assigned here to be the parish priest um even though this place has been devastated people still live here and he said uh last christmas i went along with a few of our faithful to uh people who i or to places to apartment buildings that we knew people were living and and we sang christmas carols and we prayed together and after he showed me the devastation which is very difficult to describe. You you would see houses and apartments um, um, pocked with bullet holes and blown out and things burnt. But you'd also see some buildings that just had uh, damage, but there were still photographs of family members on walls and children's toys left in, 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 in the yards. And he says, Bishop Kenneth, I know that you're busy, but do you have a few more moments? And I said, yes, of course. And so he took me to this plot of land and he says, we'll be starting to build our new church here. And I says, you're going to be rebuilding? And he says, aren't you a man of faith? And he says, of course we're going to be rebuilding. And and, he's, and I said, what, what are you going to name the church? And he says, the Church of the Holy Transfiguration. And he says, this is where we have to be. 
Um, I um, had also celebrated Divine Liturgy Mass in our parish in Irpin uh, shortly after uh, the, the, the death of Her Majesty the Queen, and I spent quite a bit of time listening to the people who had been there during the occupation and hearing what they had to endure and their sufferings and and um, praying with them was important. And then I, I said, well, um, do you have any maybe questions for me? And so this was in September of last year. And I was really surprised at the um, at the first question. The first question was, what's King Charles like? <laughs> but what that said to me is that even these people who were so persecuted, so um, endured such suffering, they hadn't separated themselves from the world because mm. the whole focus of the world had been on the funeral services uh, and, and proceedings of um, Her Majesty. And they knew about this, and they knew that. And, and I said, is there something that you want me to bring back? And they said, just tell the people of the United Kingdom how we're so grateful for, for their support, for their prayers. And one of them said, uh, when the news cycle becomes stale of the war, please let them not forget us. Let them mm -hmm. pray for us and know that we will never forget the the generosity of the people of Great Britain. Mm. Incredibly touching. Um, and, and, and as well as the, the obvious help of, of prayer, um, what sort of message would you give to our listeners about, about ways that they can help or perhaps things that are getting forgotten now but are, but are still needs? Well, people are still very much in, in need in Ukraine. Of course, prayer, essentially prayer. But um, Cafford is doing a remarkable job and partnering up with Caritas Ukraine, its partner. And if people want to be making meaningful donations, they could donate to um, um, Catford specifically for its work in Ukraine. Um, we also have, um, uh, if people want to make direct donations to the Ukrainian Catholic Church, they can do so. Mm. Um, they can find our information online. Uh, we are supporting um, especially the people in the Kherson region where the Russians had blown up the dam and uh, flooding had occurred. But Cafford is a very good way uh, to assist. And also the Society of St. Vincent de Paul um, is providing uh, soup kitchens and uh, emergency aid to people as well in Ukraine. Great. Thank you. Um, and we've got just a, a couple of minutes left, and there's so many things um, I'd, I'd still like to ask. But I, because we've, we've spoken about the ongoing work of evangelization going on in Ukraine. What does sort of evangelization look like for Ukrainian bishop in, in England? And, and how does that relate to the, the, the broader church that we work in? Do you just go after Ukrainians or... No, no. I mean, I think that uh, um, um, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is open to everyone. Um, when I was bishop in British Columbia in Vancouver for 13 and a half years before the Holy Father, Pope Francis, appointed me bishop here, um, Vancouver has a large, large population from Hong Kong. And one of our parishes um, that had been established many, many decades ago 
um, really there weren't Ukrainians in the area, so I established a um, Ukrainian Catholic Chinese parish. Uh, our liturgy is uh, in Cantonese and in English. Uh, we have a wonderful, brilliant uh, parish priest there, Father Richard Su, who is a Jesuit. His family is from China. And um, uh, our church is open to everyone. Um, we welcome everyone. We do have an English-language-speaking parish that we established here in the last 10 months. It's uh, located uh, at um, the Cardinal Hume Center on Horse Ferry Road, and we have liturgy in English every Sunday at uh, 10 a.m., and everybody would be very welcome to attend. Fantastic. Sounds like you're really putting the, the Catholic in Catholic Thank you there with the, the Cantonese-Ukrainian uh, um, Mass. Just um, in the time that remains, um, then just two two minutes. I wondered whether you might uh, just close with a, a prayer for us and, and and for your 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 people, and then also just impart your blessing to our listeners, please. Certainly. Well, Father Toby, I'd like to thank you and Radio Maria for the wonderful work that you do in evangelization and 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 sharing the Word of God, and to thank everybody who's listening and assure them of my prayers for all of you. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Christ, our risen God, we place our lives before you. We place our fears and our hopes at your feet. We pray for all of those who are alone, for those who are hungry, for those who have no one to be with them, that you would send your Holy Spirit to comfort them. We ask you to send your holy angels to the people of Ukraine who are suffering. We pray for our enemies that the Lord would open their eyes to see the horror that they're inflicting and be converted. We pray for His Holiness as He begins to prepare for His journey to Mongolia. We pray for all of the clergy in Ukraine and throughout the world who are sharing the word of God with everyone. We pray for our lay faithful, for those who are working in our charity organizations like Cafford Caritas, the St. Vincent de Paul Society. We pray for ourselves. We pray that the Lord would be with us in all of our times of joy and struggle. And we know, dear Lord, that you are with us. And we also place ourselves, all of our family and friends, this country and all of the countries of origin that we may have come from or our families have come from under the protection of the Blessed Mother of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Bishop Kenneth, thank you so much.